Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to be with us here. Father, we do come to you as your children, just asking you to speak to us today, Lord, that you would first clear our minds, clear our hearts. If there's anything in us, Lord, even this very minute, just search us. And uh, if there's anything that we need to confess to you, if there's anything that we need to uh, bring to your feet, we do that right now. And we just know that you are always faithful, Lord, to meet us where we need to be met. Today, Lord, I ask that you speak to us through Acts chapter 7, through your servant Stephen, Lord, and the testimony that has just rang throughout the ages about uh, what he's done and what happened to him and show us what we can learn from it. Pray for those that are on their way. Pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us, Lord, and that would guide this conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's coming in. Yeah, it's Rich. Good morning, Rich. So we're in Acts chapter 7. So who remembers in Acts chapter 1 what Jesus said to the disciples about their about the nature of their ministry and the location of their ministry. Who remembers what Jesus said? Anyone? Go everywhere. Very good. But there was a there was a it, there was a sequence to that, right? What's what was that sequence? Yes. So it was first where Jerusalem, then it was Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth. Now, Rich, you said something interesting. Rich said, go everywhere. Are we to go everywhere? Yes and no. Okay, that's good. That covers all the possibilities. Yeah. 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 I want you to get this one little point because, yes, God wants us to share the gospel everywhere. Um, God wants us to be called, obviously, to specific places. So Chris is correct as well. We may not be called to go everywhere. We can't be everywhere at once. We can only be where God wants us to be. Um, But what is very unique about the word of God before Jesus rose from the dead <clears throat> as it relates to geography. Oh, what, what was unique about the word of God before Jesus rose from the dead, before the book of Acts, what was unique about the word of God as it relates to geography? Primarily in Israel. Yeah. Israel. In that small little place that's probably about the size of New Jersey, or maybe even smaller, center of the world is what it's called. The word of God, not too far from there, God had revealed himself to obviously to Adam and Eve. And then who, who did he reveal himself? Who was the major player after Adam and Eve that God specifically called? Does anybody remember that person? Um, yes, after Noah, Abraham, Abraham. very good. <clears throat> Abraham was, was, was a guy that God called 
and started Israel with Abraham because he made the covenant with Abraham. And ever since then, the word of God stayed within this tiny little geographical area. And the reason why was because God was preparing to fulfill his promise to bring, that he made back in Genesis, when he said, when man fell, he goes, your seed <clears throat> to the serpent is going to get crushed by her seed, the seed of the woman. Now we know in the New Testament that that seed is Christ. So God was preserving the seed within Israel. The whole world was under the power of darkness. Nobody knew God that we know about, at least. We could, we, there could be, other, you know, God, we could find out. <clears throat> but God's revealed truth in the scripture wants us to see a very important picture here about the Great Commission. That the Great Commission means something that is much bigger than just go everywhere and preach the gospel. I don't mean to pick on you, Rich, because you said a proper thing. But go everywhere and preach the gospel. That's how we sort of interpret it now. Like We just got to go share the gospel. But what it meant to these people at that time was something completely radical, you know. And I always like to say a friend of mine who was a Jewish believer before he was a believer said, you have a better chance of convincing me. He was a, he was a male. He goes that, you, that I'm a woman than convincing me that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he said to me, right? That's the attitude of the Jewish people during, before the time of Christ. They're like, wait a second. Nobody other than people of Israel are the people of God. We're the chosen ones. This is where the word of God came through us, through the prophets, through the law. And it's, and it's made for Israel. And not until the Messiah comes will he then, will then all the nations of the world see that Israel is that true light, okay? So when Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, that's just about as radical as saying that God became a man to a Jewish person. They could not believe that God could ever become a man because they didn't understand the scriptures. Their minds were blinded. And they never would believe that the gates would be open for other people to be brought in to the people of God outside of the nation of Israel. They could never do it. They had to follow the law. They had to be a proselytized. They had to be converted. They had to get circumcised. They had to do everything perfect. But now Jesus is saying, I want you to remember this when you hear the Great Commission. He's saying, now take the word of God. Go into all the world, okay? <clears throat> However, the Jews had to hear the gospel first. That's why Jesus said, start in Jerusalem, then go to Judea, which is the larger part of the surrounding province of Jerusalem, then go to the north, to Samaria. To every, that's another thing that's crazy to them because the Samarians or the Samaritans, they're like, you know, they worship, a, they have a different mountain that they worship on. They sort of have a mock temple. They're sort of like the half-breeds. 
They inter, you know, they they made it. They interbred with the Assyrians when they were there, and they're really not part of us. But Jesus, that's why he went to the women of Samaria and the and the towns of Samaria. And then after you do that, I want you to just go to the othermost parts of the earth. <clears throat> so that was a radical thing for them to do that. Radical, like to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. So when you see the book of Acts, or the writer Luke, who is showing us the fulfillment of that prophecy, he lays out the book of Acts in a very specific, meticulous way to show us that this is happening. It's starting in Jerusalem and it's brewing out. But why did it have to start in Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria before it goes out to the uttermost parts of the earth? Who knows that? Yep, fulfills prophecy that the Jews must hear it first. It's almost like, <clears throat> anybody else have anything to add before? <clears throat> Jerry? Oh, okay. I, mean, that, I mean, that was the origin of the covenant that God made with, through Abraham, but to the world. I mean, I thought Abraham was also given the mission to represent God to the whole world. Yep. Right? Yeah. Not just to the Israelites. No, but Abraham was going to represent God to the whole world through his seed. Through being brought into the promised land, which ultimately is fulfilled by the gospel because the whole earth becomes the promised land. It becomes the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of God shines everywhere. I guess I was always under the impression that Yeah, he came, it was a foreshadow of the Gentiles here in the gospel. Okay. Okay. I'm. 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 Okay. Do you understand? Do you see how that connects? Yeah, of course. Now, what do you know when the Assyrians? Because when, when the the the, the um, when he goes to the Ninevites, that's Assyria. Nineveh is in Assyria. It's the capital. So do you know who the Assyrians were? Does anybody know who the Assyrians were? Bethany? You can't move when, when I'm teaching because I call on you. You were like this. I thought you went like that. Do you know? Okay. This was around like 900 B.C. Well, right with the nation that um, divided the Yeah, they, they invaded northern Israel and they took over northern Israel. Right? And then God punished them for doing that. So God raised them up as a way to punish Israel for their adulteries against him. Brought the people. That's why when you, the phrase in the Old Testament is the armies from the north, the armies from the north. Those are always the strongholds. It doesn't mean specifically 
I know a lot of people read into that. It's Russia. It's, it's all these other things. It's, it's not. It's the armies from the north are always re- relating to the exile and those people that were always looming over Jerusalem. That's where their biggest stronghold was, the north. So God says, I'm going to send the armies from the north. So you brought this a little out here, which is great. The Assyrians, I believe Jonah was sent to the Assyrians to show that so that way a hundred years later when they were called by God to go in to invade, they would know that God that they that they were actually following and being led into. They would know the God of the people that they were invading. So I think it was a maybe a way in 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 God's timing for them to see that, yes, they repented. They re, they, maybe there were some, some people there who got to know the God of, of, of the Bible, of, of the Israelites. But I don't want to get off too, 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 too much off of that. So, yes, God does care about all people. He does give us all his common grace. But it was a very specific, because of the justice of God, because of the character of God, he had to be very uh, meticulous on how he satisfied that justice covenantally through the Old Testament. In other words, God can't just say, yeah, you know, there was sin that happened and I'm going to bring the Messiah and I'm just going to do it whatever way I want. God could do that. But really what God did, because he is righteous and just and his foundation of his throne is truth, he has to fulfill his covenant in the way that it is laid out. So... It's imagine you're married to a husband or a wife that's been unfaithful to you over and over and over and over again. And then one final last time, you have the solution to help this spouse. So you go one last time and you tell them the solution to their problems. You tell them the answer to a good marriage. You tell them the answer. This can solve us on our problem. And they reject it. So the Jews had to, their ultimate sin, their ultimate rejection of God was, think about the whole history of the Jews throughout the Bible. What was their ultimate rejection of God? Was it the golden calf? It was Jesus. God in the flesh came face to face with his bride and they rejected him. So the gospel had to go to them first, almost as a covenantal um, action step by God who says, this was my final time to try to reconcile this marriage. But now that you have committed adultery again and you've rejected me, now I have every single right to divorce you. And that's what God did to Israel. He divorced Israel. He divorced the people of Israel because of their unfaithfulness, but then died and ratified a new covenant with the true Israel, the people of God that believe by faith through Jesus Christ. And so Rather, I don't, we, we could talk more about that if you want. When you, if you have a question, I'll be happy to jump in. But I'm laying out what's going on in chapter 7 here. I want you guys to understand what's happening here about Stephen. Because Stephen in chapter 7 goes in front of the Jewish leaders. And what is the, what is the basis of Stephen's message for those of you that have read chapter 7? Yeah. And there are, and 
subjection all the way to, <coughs> to, to, the, to the crucifixion of Jesus. Yeah. God's outreach to them. The, yep, see, the crucifixion of Jesus was really the last straw. Excuse me. But we have here in chapter 7, God ultimately giving Israel a little bit of a scripture whooping, almost like the very, very last, last opportunity for them was right here. Because what happens, where does the gospel go in chapter 8? Does anybody know? Samaria. Samaria. Where does it go in chapter 10? Goes to the Gentiles. Cornelius. And where does it go in chapter 11? Starts to go out. Yeah, Paul's missionary, first missionary journey, where they start to take it out to Greece. They take it out up into Cappadocia. They take it out up, up into Turkey, the all throughout Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And so the gospel now fully goes out to the Gentiles. But this very last time that they rejected, he raised up Stephen to reiterate the entire history of the Jewish people. And you think it's going pretty well, but then at the end, he basically, it's almost like they're listening to Stephen and they're like, okay, Okay, yeah, he's saying the right things. Wow, this Jesus is, you know, he's, you mean, he's, he's part of the same God that we used to, that we believe in? And like, so Stephen is meshing them together here with his storyline. But then at the end, what does he say? The very end in chapter, you, one of you guys can read this out loud if you want. Uh, chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. This is a this is a really tremendous insult to the Jewish people. Tremendous. Why is it such an insult to them? I mean, this sums up. You could say that if if you just started here in the Bible, you could really get a whole glimpse of what happened in the whole previous Old Testament because this cat this pretty much captures it. You have been told over and over again, every single time, this I'm paraphrasing, every single time God comes to you and shows you something, you get hard-hearted, stiff-necked, you start banking on, some, on your own identity and, and, and as the, the people of the law and all this stuff. And what the problem is, is you're doing great with the law, but your hearts are uncircumcised. Your hearts are not changed. And they're still not changed. You've killed every single person that God has sent to you. Every single person that's come to you, you've killed them. Even the ones that announced this guy, that was this, this God man, Jesus Christ. Now you've become his murderers. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep the law because without Christ, it's impossible to keep the law. 
Verse 54, Gab, read verse 54. How'd they react? And the members of the Sanhedrin heard this. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Anytime you see gnashing of teeth in the scripture, <clears throat> they're not going, like all, like, you know, gnashing. It means they're going, they, they, they've unleashed a fury. They want to kill this guy. Gnashing of teeth. Usually it's about, you know, I will lay hands on you. There will be laying of hands and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> it means I'm going to beat you down. I'm going to go crazy on you and give you the beating of your life because you've really done something, according to our law, that deserves it. And then they picked up stones and they stoned them. So what we have here is we have Stephen who gives, um, <clears throat> in my opinion, a very incredibly important um, sermon in verse set, chapter seven. It's a huge, it's a huge sermon. Listen to this. So let's let's take a step now. Let's take a step back, and let's look at the other reason why Stephen said what he said to these Jewish people. Keep in mind now that Steve, that the Jewish people have completely rejected God by rejecting their Savior. Now Stephen in front of the rulers, just a few months or a month or so after Jesus died. He says these things and look at the people who could tell me start. You don't have to read, but if you look through starting at chapter seven, if you have your Bible open, put your finger on chapter seven, verse one, and just go down. Now go down to verse two. Which, which person do we see? He started out with which biblical figure, Abraham. He talks about Abraham. Okay. Abraham to the Jewish people was the solution to Adam's sin. So Adam sinned and this Abraham that was raised up was God, the Jewish people going, God is, God is bringing, raising somebody up. God is going to deliver us. He is going to fulfill his promise. So Abraham, father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. And you guys are one of them. And so am I. So let's just praise the Lord. That's a song, by the way. I probably said it wrong. But keep going down. <clears throat> keep going down. And now go to verse 8. And we see what mentioned here by the, uh, uh, in verse 8. Uh, not just Abraham, but what aspect of the law? Circumcision, the covenant of circumcision. And then keep scrolling down. We see Isaac. We see Jacob. In verse 9, we see the patriarchs and Joseph. Keep going down. We see Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. Keep going down. Again, we see Joseph, or Jacob in verse 12. And Joseph again in verse 14. <clears throat> then go to verse 20. Who do we see there? Moses. Moses. You see a pattern here. Keep going down. What do you read in verse 27? But one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Again, this is the things that they said to Jesus. By what authority are you telling us and doing these things? Right? Go, and then you go down. <clears throat> you see the burning bush in verse 30. You see the, pot, the, the most famous phrase, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with fear. So again, we see it reiterated again. 
Verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. Aaron, they wandered in the desert. Then go down to verse 46. Who does he talk about there? <clears throat> 45, maybe, maybe it's not in your Bible in 46. It's added by the translator. Do it. David. Yep. And we talk about the, temp, the temple and the tabernacle. So this is all led up. Why did I bring us through all that? What else is Stephen trying to show the Jewish people here by mentioning all these people? What do you think? Well, that all, I mean, basically everything's been leading to Jesus. Yep, everything's been, it's, a, it's been a, it's been a leading to Jesus, a step-by-step connect the dots map of what? The gospel. The, well, the gospel, the what? The Messiah. The Messiah. Again, we started at Abraham. We went through, the, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the patriarchs, David. See, these are all the key figures of the Old Testament that the nation of Israel, every one of these names, the nation of Israel hung their hat on these names, on these people as proof that God is faithful to his, to, 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 to his people. He's faithful through. And then Stephen says, and the one that they were all talking about, the one that they were leading to, it led to the Messiah. But also what he was saying what he was trying to do, and this is what Paul did as well throughout his whole ministry, is he kept a, a mindset and a context of a monotheistic God of the Old Testament and a monotheistic God of the New Testament. What does monotheistic mean? Somebody tell me. One of the, one of the <laughs> teens here, please tell me. Monotheistic. One God. One God. How did you figure that out? What's mono mean? One. What's theis, theistic mean or theos or, the, or what's it or theos? Like, oh God. God. Yeah. So monotheistic. That was the pillar of Ju- of Judaism. One God. Worship you will worship God and him alone. So to say Jesus is God, are you saying two gods? That can't work. You're out. Are you saying that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Well, even though that theology wasn't quite worked out at this point, John knew about it for sure. John, when he wrote his Bible, was writing in a way to show us that Jesus was certainly claiming to be fully God. So my point is, is that when he's going through this, he's trying to show them, like Paul does throughout all his letters, that this Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is who we're talking about here. We're not talking about a new religion. We're not talking about, uh, I'm not trying to get you to be heretical. This is God. This is the answer, Jesus Christ. And so what we have to understand is that, and and this is what completely changed my... um, I shouldn't say changed. It, God used this in such a powerful way in my life when, when uh, he showed me that the backdrop to the whole entire Bible, the backdrop, right, has to be 
Israel. The con- when we talk about context of biblical narrative, this Acts chapter 7 is where you want to go. This is the context of the whole entire Bible. It doesn't change. The New Testament writers are these people right here. Paul was the most monotheistic uh, belief. He was a Pharisee. He knew the law better than anyone. He was trained under Gamaliel, who was what? Who was Gamaliel? He was a rabbi of rabbis. He was trained at his side. And Paul says, there's one God. He never goes off of that. Yeah, but Paul, the Gentiles, there's one God. He's God of the Gentiles, and he's the God of the Jews. And by the way, there isn't two people. There's one. Not all that are from Israel, not all that have descended from Israel are the true Israel. Who's the true Israel? The true Israel are those that are the children of Abraham by faith. That's why Abraham believed by faith. So we are modeling Abraham and we are, Jesus came and embodied Abraham's faithfulness. He was the embodiment of faithfulness. See, when I, what I like to do is, is when anytime somebody says, well, Jesus followed the law. I don't like to look at it like that. Why is that? So Jesus followed the law in our place. It means that Jesus that does, does that mean that salvation is by grace or by works? Jesus followed the law in our place. You know, you're supposed to do A, B, C, and D. You couldn't do it. Jesus did A, B, C, and D, so we get credit for it. Is that a works-based salvation or a salvation by grace? What'd you say? Works? Yes, it's works. We're not saved by works. <clears throat> But when you say Jesus was faithful to the law, he was faithful to God. And as an expression of that faithfulness to God, he followed the law. Now you could sort of see where we're supposed to be as Christians as it relates to our obedience. See, we're supposed to be faithful to God. God doesn't want blind obedience from people who are unfaithful to him with unfaithful hearts. He wants people whose hearts are turned towards him. A heart turned towards God will automatically want to do the things of God. But the Jews didn't do that. See, what, what Stephen is saying is that, no, you're un, your heart is uncircumcised. You're following the law, but you're not being faithful to the law. So Abraham is our model. Jesus is the absolute example of that model. And therefore, we believe by faith. It's not a random thing that God came up with. I often say that. He was going, this is a great plan. How do we get people to, you know, into the covenant? Well, what about love, Lord? You know, for love, you are saved. By hope, you are saved. You know, no, by faith. Well, by grace, through faith. And that not of yourselves. And the faith isn't even of ourselves. It's something that God provides for us as well. But that's because we model it after the faithfulness of Jesus. We don't want to be like the unfaithful Israel. We want to be the faithful Christian, the faithful Jesus follower. And that comes from a heart that seeks after God. 
So anyone have questions on that at all? Did you, you guys follow on that? Just a, a comment on this, yeah. like the emphasis. Of, um, obviously, the first <coughs> believers were all... Yep. So when, first believers were Jews. Yeah, so when God divorces Israel, it's more the, the corrupted religious system than the actual individuals. Because when the uh, you know, day of Pentecost, all those believers came in and they kept on growing. Yeah, right? yes. So the people among the people were his first... Yeah. You know, new believers after Christ was risen from the dead. There were Jewish people. Yeah, and Stephen speaking to the Sanhedrin to leadership. Yeah. So I think just it's more of an emphasis just from, you know. No, it's a great point. All all people. He actually started by bringing in um, a lot of Jewish people first before he brought in any other. Absolutely. Jewish people came into the... Here's where you got to go with what Chris just said. Here's a way to remember it. Because Chris just brought something up really good that sometimes confuses people because you'll say, well, wait a minute. Jesus, you know, God, you know, was done with Israel, but yet all the New New Testament Christians were Jewish. They were Israelites. Here's where you got to go. You got to step up and get that bigger, broader picture. God is a covenantal God of justice. So the old covenant could not no longer be in in effect when the new covenant came in. So there are many Jews that are part of the new covenant, but that old covenant with the Jews, the Jews failed miserably. So God being a just God couldn't just keep on, like you and I, if we went into business together and I said, we'll split it 50-50, the profits, but I'm not sending you any checks You could say, all right, well, what am I going to do? I have to what? Break this covenant with Pat. I may have to hire an attorney and go to court and break this contract and call call him to, to pay the debt that he owes me. And so what happens is, is we go to court and, uh, and I say, well, Rich, um, you know, we had a deal and, uh, the reason I haven't paid you was because I was just, I was just spending the money uh, frivolously. But now I'm a changed man. I've become a Christian. And now I want to have a new, a new contract with you, a new covenant. And Rich in his grace and love cancels the old covenant and starts a new covenant with me. So it's the, still the same bad guy that was there before, but now I have a new heart and I'm changed. So that's the new covenant. You guys getting me on that? Okay. When I do this, that means new covenant. If I was like this, that wouldn't be New Covenant. That'd be, that would be Old Covenant. Go ahead, Rich. I, I have a problem with this term, this, this expression you guys are using, that God divorced Israel. Yeah. I'm not seeing this. Where does God divorce Israel? Well, do you, where, what does God say about divorce in Micah? He hates it. Right. What's he saying that to What is he saying in what context? In the context of an adulterous... Israel. Yeah, right. Yeah, so God is saying to them, you're making me divorce you. I hate divorce in that context. But um, I forgot the prophet's name. He didn't divorce Gomer. Right, right. Hosea didn't divorce Gomer. Right, that's way back here, okay? So that's way hundreds of years before as God was, again, so you got it. You want to get into that date, into that context, 
God is saying, listen, Hosea, I want you to do me a little bit of a, because prophets, what they used to do was act out things, okay, in front of Israel. So Jesus, when he goes into the temple and flips all the money changers and all that stuff, although we look at it and go, yeah, that was really good to have that righteous anger because they were using God's place of, uh, of house as a place of business and not a place of prayer. But really what that meant was this temple's going to be destroyed. I am destroying the system of the temple. I am destroying the temple. And he, he symbolically does that. So Hosea was like, looking, you know, for a wife and he gets called by God as a prophet to go to Israel and say, Israel, you are the unfaithful wife. And so Hosea goes to God, goes to Hosea, go, go, go get a prostitute and marry her. Gomer. And show Israel right now that, and, and, and she will no longer be a prostitute. Take her into your home but Israel still rejected because that's what God was doing with Israel. He kept taking in that unfaithful. But the, what's the very last book of, uh, of the Old Testament? I'm sorry, the, um, one of the very last books written in the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure. Let me make sure before I say that. Is the book of Micah. Unless I'm going to retract that. Malachi is the very last book. That's... That's what I was, that's what I was going to, but where's my map here? No, it's not, it's not, uh, I'm mistaken. It's not the, one of the very last books. So let's see what it is. So Micah was written in Does anybody have that open? Cuz for some reason my mind my eyes won't focus on Micah right now because I need to focus on Micah. What do you want to know? No, when was Micah written? Cuz I want to just kind of put that into context. This is sort of off Okay. Does it say the... the um, Late 8th century. 8th, okay. Yeah, yeah. So this was, this was before. But beside the point, it doesn't nullify the point. The point, the point that I'm making, Rich, is that although God... And I'll, I'm going to say something in a minute that'll really... It'll blow your top a little bit. But <laughs> Micah says that God hates divorce because Israel was making God completely, 100%, no choice but to be honoring to that covenant. And that is, if you violate the covenant, you shall die. Deuteronomy 18 and 19, and I'm sorry, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, the last two chapters of Deuteronomy reiterate the curses and the blessings, which is a covenantal book, okay? So, what happens is, is in order for God to remarry another bride, what has to happen? Death. death. Either death of the bride or death of the, of the one that instituted the other half of the covenant. So this is the beauty of Jesus dying for his bride and still keeping the covenant. 
Because by him, by God dying, he now can remarry. Do you understand? And that remarriage that he's doing is the church, which is still the same ultimately as, as the true Israel. But that's not divorce. Dying to the law, I, and Paul talks about that in Romans 7. That's not, the, he doesn't, I'm not sure, I'm sorry, what I'm questioning is the divorce aspect. I yeah. know that Jesus died um, so that the law could be, the law is no, not the, no longer the covenantal uh, basis for mm-hmm. one's relationship with the Lord. It's now faith, like you said, in, in Jesus Christ. But where is the divorce? We'll define divorce, because this is not a... You, this is a writ of a divorce, although I believe there is a scripture that says that. I just can't think it through right now. I don't know exactly. It may be in Isaiah. I'm not sure. But when you say divorce, I think what God is talking about here is this is a figurative concept that he's it's, it's cutting the, them off. It's the destruction of a marriage. Yes, of a covenant. Right. Yeah, that's the old covenant. That's why the old covenant's gone. So the old covenant's gone and nullified Hebrews, right? The whole book of Hebrews is about that. The new covenant came in, could only be in, in effect if the old covenant was canceled. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And so when you look at the ultimate um, punishment and ratification of that divorce, you see the destruction of Jerusalem. You see the stones. If you look, if you, if you, and this is what is going to blow you, blow your mind a little bit. If you read jo- the book of Josephus of the war, they're called the War of the Jews, and you read the details about the destruction of Jerusalem, it's almost perfectly paralleled in the book of Revelation. The stoning of the, the great city, the stoning of the great harlot, Israel, because an adulteress gets stoned to death. So God is destroying, and that's what my belief in the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation is about pound for pound, right out of the scriptures, right out of history. I'm talking out of the Old Testament and out of the historical books that we still have hold of, Josephus for one, which is very well respected, was written as a perfect uh, outline of what happened at the, in, in, in Jerusalem. And so that's the other thing. Now, there's a book out there, if you want to learn more about it, by Ken Gentry called The Great Divorce. And it's all about this topic. And I can see that I'm sort of losing some of these people here. So I'll, let's talk more about that. But that's, that's just my belief on it. Yeah. Um, or my way to interpret how do you it. Divide the, you have the term the law, which was fulfilled in Christ, I guess, and, and the covenant. Okay, well, that's a good point. So what's the difference between the law and covenant? Define law. Okay, so here's what most people think of the law. What do they think of? Ten Commandments. But that's not the law, although it is. The law is the Torah. It's the entire covenant that God made with Israel. So that is, in effect, the covenant, okay? The Torah 
is, an, is, 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 is part of that covenant that God made with Abraham. It's an expression that you will be my people and here are the stipulations. See, every covenant has two, two participants. It has stipulations, it has blessings, it has curses. Every covenant. So the Torah was part of that covenant. The blessings and the curses and the stipulations and all that other stuff. So it's ultimately all in the same category, Hubert. So the new covenant is now what? That Torah is now written on our hearts through faith. So we fulfill that by having faith in Christ. We don't fulfill that just because Jesus did it all in our place. We fulfill it by having faith in Jesus Christ. And then we become in Christ. And now all the promises that are in Christ are yes and amen. So we fill everything that was required of the old covenant and of the new covenant when we believe in Jesus Christ. But does God throw away his people? No, he says that all of Israel and this is another controversial thing in, in, in Romans 11, that some of them have been partially hardened during this time, purposely, by God. But by the end of time, by the end of this age, those that are truly called, that are Jewish, let's just say it for that, just to distinguish there, will be brought into the new covenant as well too. Those that are truly of Israel. The full. So then Paul says at the end, so now all of Israel will be saved as God has promised. So I know some of this stuff is hard for you guys because we're so used to thinking along the lines of certain ways. And, and I'm not, and it, but I'm not reinventing anything. I'm just trying to dig a little deeper behind the context to bring it out even more because that's what the Holy Spirit intends us to do. He inspires the gospel to the writers of the gospel at that time in that place to the people they were writing to. You get that, Bianca? Okay. All right, so we got 1030. Um, next week, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll focus more on application next week. We'll focus more on Stephen. Why Stephen? Why Stephen was called. We know he was a man of faith, of good reputation, and what? Full of the Holy Spirit. Right? So Jeremy, I'm like, Jeremy, listen, buddy, you are called into ministry. You are a good reputation. You are uh, full of faith. And you're full of the Holy Spirit. And you're like, well, gee, thanks, Pat. That's awesome. Good, buddy. Here you're going to fulfill your calling. Ready? Go out and get stoned. That's Stephen. He went out and got stoned very quickly right after he was called. But look at it in a way and looking at the piece of the puzzle that he filled is just absolutely amazing. We can learn a lot from Stephen's ministry, from Stephen's attitude, and also from his, his, uh, his calling, what he was called to do. And so we'll talk a little bit about more about that next week. But if, I, if you can, read ahead a little bit. Read uh, like a chapter ahead. So this week we're gonna, we'll, we'll stay in seven next week, but then read ahead this week to chapter eight because there's no one isolated chapter in the book of Acts. They're all connected. 
uh, in terms of the big picture. So now if you have a couple more questions, we could, uh, I don't mind spending an, a couple more, a minute, if anybody has one or two questions, we can take those. Any? Do some research on that, on the, on the scripture. Type in divorce. In, do you use like a, a, a Bible or an online Bible thing that you could type it in and it'll show you all the references? Do that. Search divorce. Look it up in the uh, in the Hebrew and in the Greek and you want me to do it now? No. no, no, no. I'm saying in your all your spare time. <laughs> so, uh, anybody have any other questions? I'm sorry if we got a little technical, but that's fun. That's the way we got to learn. We got to be able to think. When you guys are in a church service or in a dot Bible study and it starts getting technical, don't roll your eyes and say, "Well, man, I don't get any of this." Listen, figure it out. It's the Word of God. Ask questions. Talking to you, young people. Because doctrine dictates behavior. Doctrine dictates behavior. So it's important to have your doctrines right. And not just, if you just go to the surface and just eat all the cream on top, what's going to happen, Bianca? Your blood sugar is going to go up, you know, and you're not going to be healthy. All right. So you want to be a balanced diet. Okay. You want to have the good foundation. And that really comes down to doctrine. Okay. Matthew 5.32. Yep. 